Father, we just um, come before you humbly as we look at the Word of God. Thank you for the events of the book of Acts. We've learned so much about the gospel in the church. And uh, today is a, a kind of a wild story. So we ask you to bless us as we study together in Christ's name. Amen. So, finally, um, Paul is going to be boarding a ship for Rome. So if you've been with us, you know he's been waiting for like two years held in custody by an unjust uh, governor named Felix who hoped the Christians would pay him a sum to let Paul go free and they weren't going to do that so um, Paul languished in Caesarea for a couple of years. He was treated well enough but he uh, was not really free. So when this new governor comes, we talked about last time, uh, Festus, Paul, well he asked Paul if he would be tried in Jerusalem and now they had tried to kill him in Jerusalem already and assassinate him even traveling there so, uh, or from there and they're planning to, travel to kill him when he's going back to there so he says no thank you <coughs> but he does say I appeal to Caesar and so that's, that's what is sending him to Rome and he had that right as a Roman citizen. So Festus has to send him to Rome so in chapters 25 and 26 Luke gave us this really clear gospel presentation kind of taking all the gospel themes he's been pointing at all through the book of Acts and gives us this one great presentation where Paul is sharing Christ with Governor Festus, the new governor, and King Herod Agrippa, and many of the leading Roman citizens in Caesarea. So it's just a great way to kind of theologically bring the book uh, to where it's supposed to be. But now uh, Luke is going to give us this kind of harrowing tale of storm-tossed seas and, and a shipwreck. So we've seen Luke's interest in traveling by sea. We've talked about that several times. And he loves to give details about distances and ports of call and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but nothing is like chapter 27. I mean, it's just a massive amount of space. When you're talking about one scroll and you've got basically from our point of view 28 chapters, he takes a lot of space devoted to this journey to Rome by sea uh, for Paul. He could have summed it up in just a few sentences, but it's a really full account, very detailed. So when I see stuff like that in the Bible, I go, okay, why? Why is this book uh, constructed the way it is? And we've seen such a masterful presentation of everything. And, and Luke is not a rambler, but um, he's a very disciplined writer, a, a purposeful writer. So I'm always intrigued by the length of space he devotes to different things. And there's just a lot of space devoted to this sea story, this storm at sea. And um, so I think, why so much detail about that? Is this just the action scene at the end of the movie or, or, or what, you know? Well, no, it's really not anything like that. My own guess is, I think Luke's purpose is for us to see Paul in this particular situation because he really comes off as a wonderful Christian person and um, there's a lot we can kind of learn from his example and this you ever have a storm in your life you know not just storms but storms well studying Paul's life in this moment is, is kind of important plus Luke was there I mean most of the book of Acts are things he's telling us through his own investigation people giving him information and writing down the stories but he was we've, all, we've talked about the we sections there's only a few times when he's actually there telling us something that he's seen well he's on this ship with Paul so um, obviously it's going to leave a big impression on his life and he wants to share it so uh, Chapter 27 and 28 are eyewitness accounts. So Luke is on this voyage and um, he, it's part of the whole thing there. So obviously it's an important event that happened in his own personal life. But I, I actually think there's a, 
a Holy Spirit reason for this chapter with all the detail and all the extensive discussion of this. Um, so I don't even know if Luke was aware of it but the Holy Spirit has a divine purpose for this. Now if you read this in the first century you'd say wow that was quite a typical sea story on the Mediterranean Sea at, the, at that time of year when things are always stormy. That, oh, we all know about that. That's a really famous thing. But in modern times you know we're looking are, are these history books or is this just some made up story? Well Luke's account of this incredible sea journey is so precise and accurate to everything we know. It's just one more point in his favor and there's been many where he's got history down perfectly. Locations, details, I mean he was there. So this event actually happened. This isn't some made up story. And modern people um, that are experts in this stuff look back and when they talk about Roman sea travel on the Mediterranean people, at, you know there's people that are experts in that kind of stuff. Um, they say this is, our, this is one of the most valuable accounts we have of what it was like traveling on the Mediterranean in a Roman ship, a grain ship at that particular time because it's so accurate. So um, it helps us modern people to know this is not a, a story or a myth or anything. Luke is writing real history. So there's that element of it. In fact there's a historical scholar, his name was James Smith and this was a number of years ago, but he was a historian and a yachtsman and he decided to retrace uh, what Paul's going to describe, what Luke's going to describe to us here in terms of Paul's journeys and he found out that it was, it, it's exactly accurate, it's still accurate today. That just the flow of the seas at the time of the year, the kind of storms and all that stuff. He went through very similar things, where he landed and all that stuff. It was, uh, he says it was an amazing account and uh, he's just an, a one other voice that says it, but he actually physically retraced that in his own sailing ship. So it's pretty interesting stuff. So remember though throughout all of this Paul is a prisoner. He's headed to Rome to be tried before Caesar. So verse 1 begins with Paul being handed into the custody of a new guard, a centurion named um, Julius and he's of the Augustan cohort. So when it was decided that we would sail for Italy they, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And here again Luke is right on top of things. These Augustans were, um, Augustus Caesar created a system of communications throughout the empire and had centurions that did this kind of work. There were three or four main jobs they were connecting the empire to the emperor and so of being of the Augustan cohort is exactly the right guy that's exactly accurate about what this would be. So he's one of those guys that take messages back and forth or brings prisoners back and forth, keeps accountability between what's going on in the provinces and the local governments and the, and the emperor. So that's very accurate too. And again notice the, the we, the we part of this um, coming up here. Luke is sailing with Paul and Aristarchus actually is with him too. Aristarchus was one of the guys from Thessalonica that brought the money to Jerusalem with Paul when he came there a couple years before this and all, all the big mess happened. So apparently Paul is allowed to have these guys along. We don't know details about that but probably because Paul is a Roman citizen if he pays their way he can have his own servants if you will be with him so it's probably a situation like that. Uh, probably a privilege of citizenship but we're not sure about that. But um, it could just be a favor, a favor from the governor because Paul did seem to touch Herod and Festus in some way when he gave this big speech to them previously so um, maybe he's just being extra kind to him I don't know but um, he's even allowed to leave the group for a little while. Look at verse 2 this is pretty interesting. They embarked on an Adramitian ship 
don't worry about what that is, but <laughs> it's a place, but um, which is about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia. So they're coming out of Caesarea on the coast of Israel and they're going north and then they're going to run along Asia and the ship is going up there. They've got to catch a, they've got to catch a ship going to Italy. So this is the best way to do that. So we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus of Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon and Julius, oh by the way uh, the first part of verse 2 there or the middle there it says we put out to sea. That's the we. So that's Luke. He doesn't mention himself but that's the we and then he mentions Aristarchus. So two of Paul's companions are with him. The next day we put, it, we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. So they're starting to work their way up the coast towards um, Asia. That's what they're going to do. They stop at Sidon and they actually let Paul go off the ship and go see some Christian brothers and sisters in Sidon. So I'm, I'm sure he had a guard with him but uh, that was pretty nice of Julius to let him do that. So they've only gone about 70 miles. To get to Rome it's about 1380 miles. So it's going to be a long trip. But their trip is so disastrous it takes, it's over 2,000 miles of traveling by sea on the Mediterranean trying to get, trying to, get to uh, Rome. So it's, a, it's quite a thing. So these, this particular ship is working the coastal waters along there. So again they're going to try to connect up with Rome. Verse 4. So there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia we landed at Myra in Lycia. So Myra is uh, it's in Asia Minor. It was a main port for these grain ships coming from Egypt. They'd go up there, log in up there and start working um, west towards Rome. Myra's still there. It's uh, a ruin today but it's about two miles inland from the coast there. But that's where they change ships and they catch a grain ship. Now at the time of this story, the first century Roman Empire, about 420,000 tons of grain were sent to Rome from the eastern provinces of the empire every year. 420,000 tons of grain. That's, that's how they kept the Romans happy. Rome was the biggest city in the empire by far. million people and they've got to feed those people and keep them happy, right? So they just take grain from all over the empire, especially Egypt and they, they take it to Rome and so there's this massive um, shipping going on bringing grain to Rome during the year. So verse 6, there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and he put us aboard it and when we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Snidus, since the wind did not permit us to go further we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salome and with difficulty sailing past it we came to a place called Fair Havens near which was the city of Lassia. Did we get our picture up? Why don't you go ahead and throw that picture up. So um, you can kind of follow along there. You see where Crete is and they're sneaking down. They can't go straight west because the winds are against them. So they're going to go south and sneak along under Crete there. That's what they're doing. And that's where Fair Havens is. I think that's also a place in the Lord of the Rings. But um, <laughs> I'm sure that's where he got the name. That's probably a common name actually for shipping places. But it, it's actually still called Fair Havens today in, in modern Greek uh, language. So um, it's still there. So anyway they're sneaking under um, Crete there to kind of get those winds off of them that were pushing them in the wrong direction. So they stop at Fair Havens. Now they're interested 
in entering kind of a dangerous season uh, in the Mediterranean. So mid-September through mid-November is when things start to get bad. By November 11th or so, you're supposed to stop shipping for the season, for the winter season. So it's, it's getting rough. It's like going to be difficult, and they're in the difficult zone. Paul's getting worried about their safety. Verse 9, when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, men I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship but also our lives. So Paul's saying, you know, this is not looking good for our safety. He wants him to just pull in for the winter. When he talks about the fast, that would be the Day of Atonement. So in AD 59 that was like October 5th, 6th, something like that. So uh, the pilot and the centurion, they don't want to, uh, they don't want to stay in Fair Haven. So Fair Havens must not have been that fair to, to camp in for, uh, for the winter. So they decided to move farther along the coast and go to Phoenix. That's not Arizona, that's um, it's part of Crete. Verse 11, the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than he was what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision. See, see how these guys are all talking about it. What are we going to do? You know, so they're making a decision, so everybody's pitching in their particular uh, opinions about it. Um, the majority reached a decision to put out to see from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, the harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest and spending the winter there. So off they go, verse 13, when a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close in shore. But before very long there rushed down from the land a violent wind called an Uraquio. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. That guy, that yachtsman, Mr. Smith, who is a historian who followed Luke, he got caught up in exactly the same thing. So uh, at the same time of year, he traveled the same time of year that they did and um, he said the sudden this is his quote, the sudden change from a south wind to a violent northerly, northerly wind is a common occurrence in these seas. And so the sailors would have all recognized this, this old enemy, the Uraquio, you know. So um, they're getting blown the wrong way. That's what's going on. So that's why this is going to be a 2,000 mile trip instead of a 1,300 mile trip. So um, they start making for Clauda, which is an island like 23 miles off of Crete, trying to get under its protection. And they have... Um, they have enough calm to, to bring in the dinghy. These boats, these big grain boats trailed a smaller boat behind them like a lot of ships did in the sailing age and you could use that to like go to shore and do that kind of stuff but um, they decide to bring it in. Verse 16 says, running under the shelter of the small island of Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. So that's the little boat. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship. So now they're actually so worried, they're placing cables around the hull of the ship to hold it together. Now, you know when you see the guys doing that and you're a traveler? <laughs> start to get a little worried there. <laughs> oh, what are you guys doing? Well, we're trying to hold the hull together. <laughs> Pliny, Pliny the Younger, who is a, a Roman that lived just a little bit after Paul's time. He lived in that area of the world. He wrote a natural history and he said these strong winds that Luke is describing here, he said, quote, were the chief plague of sailors, not only breaking up the spars, the top parts of the ship, but the hull itself. So that was a known problem and Luke is recording exactly the same kind of thing. They're going, so they're strapping the ship to hold it together. Um, scary time. 
Verse 17 a little farther in. Uh, Fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis. They let down the sea anchor. And in this way let themselves be driven along. So they're trying to slow themselves down. So they don't crash on these sandbars off the coast of North Africa. Uh, the shallows of Sirtis it's called. And this is going just from bad to worse. It's getting um, dangerous more and more dangerous. Paul, Paul said it was going to be this way. But it's starting to look like they actually might not make it. Um, so the last thing they want to do is dump their cargo but that's what they decide to do. So verse 18 the next day they were being violently storm tossed. They began to jettison the cargo and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So more and more stuff's going over. All that grain went into the sea and then now they're actually throwing out the ship's uh, equipment uh, as well trying to lighten their load there. So this is not an hours long problem it's a multi-day problem it's working into weeks actually. So they've tried to um, they've, got, they've got to try to sleep and rest during all this time these many days of travel and eat and all that kind of stuff and of course they're sick as dogs uh, on, the, on the ocean being bobbed around like that. It gets worse more days 20 uh, since verse 20 since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. So the whole attitude of the crew uh, the commanders everybody else are starting to really despair and so nature is winning the battle and they're probably not going to make it. So if that ship goes under in the Mediterranean and they've found a lot of ships in the bottom of the Mediterranean um, they're going to be doomed. They're, they're, they're not going to make it. So just at this moment of, of helplessness God intervenes and he speaks to the Apostle Paul. Verse 21. When they had gone a long time without food then Paul stood up in their midst and said men you ought to have followed my advice. He shouldn't have said this but um, <laughs> not have sailed, set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. But now I urge you keep up your courage for there will be no loss of life among you but only of the ship. So how would he know that? Well he says for this very night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me saying do not be afraid Paul you must stand before Caesar and behold God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore keep up your courage men for I believe that, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. So this angel has told Paul quite a bit about what's going to happen. And he's basically saying you'll all be spared if you all stick together. So God's going to be merciful to them. Kind of like in Ben-Hur when um, you know he, he, he gets on that little raft with a Roman commander and they finally get saved and the Roman commander says in his eagerness to save you your God has saved the entire fleet. So um, which is kind of a similar situation here. So God is going to save everybody. God's going to be merciful to the whole group there. Now God could have saved Paul by himself, right? I mean God does know how to get prophets in the sea to different places. He does know how to do that. So he could have them swallowed up by a big fish <laughs> or whatever he wants to do. But he, he, God is being merciful to all of them. Do you think Paul's sharing the gospel with these people while they're traveling? Of course. So um, he's, he wants it to work out this way. He, he's mercifully, mercifully going to save them all not, not just Paul but obviously Luke and Aristarchus and then everybody else. Every, there's, there's hundreds of guys here. So it's uh, pretty exciting. 
So Luke doesn't tell us the officer's reaction to Paul, but they seem to regard him highly and somebody with a lot of piety and maybe he does have some connection with the gods as, it, as they might see it. So look what happens in verse 27. When the fourteenth night came, so this has been going on for two weeks, as they were been driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They're probably hearing breakers, but it's night and they can't see where they are. So they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms and a little farther on they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. So the land is coming up right under the water so they're getting close to something. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. (coughs) So all they know is they're somewhere in the Adrian Sea that sort of connects Malta and Italy and Greece and Crete and somewhere in there. They know they're somewhere in there but they don't know where. So the sailors um, are probably hearing it but it's too dark. They try to hold their position but then the crew makes their own decision. So this is kind of mutinous actually. They decide to abandon ship. And they're not going to tell anybody they're abandoning ship. They're just going to abandon ship. This does happen. There was a real famous uh, ferry some years ago that got in a lot of trouble. was full of uh, uh, people and the crew left. (laughs) just left the ship. I mean this was in modern times because they were going to save themselves and that kind of thing does happen and that's exactly what's about to happen here. So they're going to escape in the little dinghy and leave the prisoners and leave the Romans too behind. So the crew is deciding to do this. Now this location is described by Luke and um, it actually checks out as well. In fact you know what they call this? They're going to end up landing on this bay or getting to this bay. It's called St. Paul's Bay. It's called that today. And um, uh, the guys that did this uh, checking out stuff found that the, the fathoms leading up to this bay were exactly today. They're the same as they were back then. So you can do the same test. So um, that's exactly where it was. So, so St. Paul's Bay today is actually the real place where they ended up um, ending up. So they're taking this the um, sounding, you know, the, the sailors are, are going to pretend they're going to lay out the anchors, but actually they're going to take the dinghy and get in it and take off from everybody else. But Paul is on to this. He warns the centurion, verse 30, as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you you." you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. So the soldiers stopped the crew from abandoning ship by cutting away the small ship. So um, Paul, Paul's sort of starting to take charge here you notice. So he's going to help them all be safe. He's not pushing himself forward. I mean, he actually has a word from God and he's sharing uh, what he knows to be true and they're actually listening. So here his ability to, to lead in a difficult situation in a storm um, really comes to the fore. Verse 33, until the day was about to dawn Paul was encouraging them all to take some food saying today is the 14th day that you've been constantly watching and going without eating having taken nothing. Therefore I encourage you to take some food for this is your preservation for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. And then this, having said this he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all and he broke it and began to eat. So he's leading uh, this food moment with a prayer to the living God, the, the true God. So he's 
this is evangelism uh, in a very practical and real sense. He doesn't hide his faith. He's very open about it. He's, he's really taking command of the situation. Verse 36, all of them were encouraged and they themselves also took food. So Paul's steady confidence in the Lord helped everybody else handle the situation. This is what leadership looks like. So he was being strong and deliberative and doing the right thing by everyone. All of us in the ship, Luke says, there were 276 persons. That's a lot of people. So um, that's a lot of death if that ship goes down. So you think of 276 people, how big were these ships? Well, they were pretty big. They were pretty big. They actually found a Roman grain ship and they were all, all different sizes, but one that was actually fairly intact at the bottom of the sea. It's called the Isis. And so I obviously guys have studied it. It was 180 feet long, 45 feet wide, and 44 feet deep where the cargo area was. So it could easily hold some, a ship, and there were bigger ships than that, that we know because of tonnage, because the Romans recorded the tonnage of some of these ships. There were bigger ones than that, but they, these ships could hold that many people. Um, but all the grain is gone, right? <laughs> They've already checked it. So uh, you could definitely have hundreds of people on board. But let's talk about Paul here, just how he keeps his head, how he trusts God. Um, he's very positive and he's encouraging to everyone else. Sometimes by you being a person of faith and trusting God and openly displaying that trust in God with people, you can be the calm in a stormy situation. And so we're talking about growing in your faith to a point where you can be like Paul in a difficult situation. As a Christian, you should be the level person in um, a situation. I, I, it, it grows from personal maturity, but especially spiritual maturity. Um, we, can, we can keep situations from turning bad by being grown-ups, you know. The sailors, the sailors were afraid and they were being controlled by their fear and um, they're going to take the next step now to save their lives. Watch how this works out here. So now if you're in danger of running aground and you've got the ship as light as possible, uh, what do you got to do? You got to throw everything overboard. So that's what they do in verse 38. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay of the beach and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. So this is kind of exciting now. Throwing everything possible out of the ship. They're heading for, this, for the bay. They've got their sails totally trimmed. They had these one singular giant sails and then a couple of little sails. But uh, they have one huge sail. And they're headed for the beach. We're going to make it. We're going. We're going. And then BAM! They run on the ground on something. So there's something underneath them. They hit it. Verse 41. Striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. So they're stuck and the wave is throwing the ship around and the stern part is starting to crack up, you know, so that the hull again is coming apart. So they didn't make it. Close but no cigar as they say. So um, they're going to have to swim for it. Now, now another problem comes. So at one point they're going to be abandoned by the crew, but now the Roman soldiers are thinking about this. Okay, we're not going to make it to the bay. We're going to have to swim for it. Some of these prisoners might get away. <laughs> Verse 42, the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. 
so the crew's going to abandon them. The soldiers are going to kill them. Talk about stress. This is a stressful situation. Actually, the soldiers seem like they've been very patient all of this, all this time. You know, they don't say much, right? It's the officers and the chief people. But prisoners escaping means a lot to a Roman soldier. Because if a prisoner escapes, they'll kill you. So they've got a personal interest in making sure that um, nobody escapes. You know, every, every culture makes decisions about whose lives are worth preserving, right? So this is one of those situations. Like in our country, sexual freedom is so important that human life uh, in the womb is easily sacrificed. In fact, now children in many states in our country only have protection un- after they're born. And people for any reason can kill them. And so w- our culture has its own versions of this. Who's, who's valuable and when? You know, and now we're starting to knock off people at the other end of life uh, if they're inconvenient. So children in the womb are precious, but if they're in the way, you know, uh, they're disposable, completely disposable. And people believe that with a passion. I mean, they're passionate about it. So um, they think you're cruel if you don't believe that that's a good thing. So the Roman army, they prioritized in their culture uh, order. Uh, order over life and certain infractions of order meant that a Roman soldier could lose his life. So they're not going to let that happen to them. So losing the prisoners is one of those infractions. So even in these desperate circumstances at sea it's better to kill them than to risk anybody escaping because that puts them all at jeopardy if they if they live you know. And apparently Paul would have been slain too. We don't have any indication that a citizenship would, prote- would protect him in this particular situation. So the other, the other prisoners are probably not citizens. There could be one or two, but that you wouldn't have hundreds of people being taken off to Rome. They're probably slaves going to market in Rome. Maybe a few of them were going to end up in the games, um, not as gladiators, but just fodder for lions and stuff like that. Um, that's very possible. But the slave market was probably going to get most of them. So not only grain was shipped to Rome, um, you know, human beings were shipped to Rome victims to feed Roman bloodlust in the arena and things like that. So on this day by God's grace they're all going to survive. So Julius the centurion he actually protects, he's interested in protecting Paul. He likes Paul. So um, everybody's going to be saved. Verse 43, the centurion wanting to bring Paul safely through kept them from their intention. So he ordered the soldiers to stand down. He must have promised them protection for themselves. And he commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, that the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they were all brought safely to land. What a story. Safely on land. They all make it. Every single one of them. All these 270 something people. So what did we learn from all of this? Well I think again Paul's example. Paul lives for Christ. Period. I mean that's his whole life, right? He's suffered attacks for Christ many times. He's been put on trial for Christ several times. Mobs have beaten him. Assassins have plotted against him. For weeks he's been in jeopardy of death here at sea. And what do we see? He's just completely faithful. He's got the circumstances under control in terms of him himself. Um, that's really our lesson here. If you, if you want to take away something from this, here's a godly man in a storm. This is a godly man in a storm. So whatever your life has many kinds of storms and when they come you don't want to be the one that's freaking out. Now sometimes we do freak out but you should be growing in your Christian faith to the point where you're going to be that steady soul. 
got to you've got to mature to that level. Paul is not panicking. He's the voice of calm. He's the voice of reason. Does he he offer sound advice? Yes, he offers sound advice. Does he act out of desperation? No, he doesn't. Does he let fear rule him or is he trusting God with the situation? He's trusting God with the situation. Even if you don't know if you're going to live, you can trust God with the situation because if you die, like Paul says in his epistles, to be with Christ is better. So the worst thing that can happen is that we are in eternal glory. That's the worst thing that can happen. So even in a dangerous situation, we can have courage. I was thinking of those uh, missionaries that were in Haiti, you know, that were being held hostage and they actually escaped and just their calm, when they talk about it, it's like they were so calm and, and dealing with the situation as they found it and they, they got away from these kidnappers and um, they're all home now, but uh, that, that's, that's what the Christian does. You, ever, you guys remember that movie Chariots of Fire? Um, Eric Little, the, uh, he was a missionary in China uh, after the Olympics, you know, he's a big Olympic hero and then he went to China as a missionary, an English missionary, Scottish actually, but um, he ended up being in a Japanese internment camp. He was captured and uh, he ended up dying there. But if you read about his life in that camp, everybody's worried about trying to find enough to eat and you know, a lot of tussling going on and all that stuff. And he was this Christian presence, just this mature presence, putting on, having the kids do games and controlling everything and just trying to be this godly. And he ended up dying there, but that's okay. Because he went out of a mature Christian representative into glory, you know. And, but he was such a representative of Christ in that situation. So we should be like that in storms for other people that they can see the steadiness that we have and not wigging out too much, you know. You've got to be able to trust God and be that, that voice. So we're to grow in Christ so we can bring him into the world in any situation. It's really beautiful that Paul is praying when he breaks the bread for all those, those people on that ship. They saw that. He said, my God's going to rescue you. And then he's praying to that God openly and talking about him. So you have to submit your life to the Lord. Submit your life to the wisdom of the Lord. You know, the Bible tells you how to be a wise person. And you want to train your heart and your mind to be that wise person. Some people lose their ways in life. You know, they end up in kind of bad situations and they're not very grown up. But if you come to Christ as one of those people, you should start to grow up. You know, you start to change your life. You start to make better decisions. You start to trust God and um, become an example of somebody that trusts God. And the, the Christian has all kinds of resources, right? You know, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God. We have Christians around us that will advise us and counsel us and pray with us and stand with us and help us grow up. We've all got to grow up. We've all got to grow up into maturity. And maturity isn't being a cold-hearted uh, stoic it's being a compassionate person that's full of concern for other people and is steady in a horrible situation you know sometimes when you're a pastor you get kind of weird calls this woman's husband had died over in one of the RV parks and I didn't know them from Adam but her neighbors called me they didn't know me either they just call a pastor she's totally out of her head you know so this lady like freaking out and so they're waiting for the sheriff to come and all this stuff. So I go over there and I just sit with this lady and I'm just calm. She's out of her head. She literally is out of her head for hours. And I just sit with her, pray with her, talk to her, share Christ with her. Her husband's laying there dead on the floor. And you know, just to be a mature person in a situation like that is beneficial. It's calming for them and it opens doors. You know, so sometimes you just, you're going to find yourself in those situations in life and you've got to be that calm steady person that's going to be there in the storm for other people to to latch on to you know poor lady 
Peter in his first letter says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. It's exactly right. The Gentiles should see our excellent behavior. They should see a mature human being, a, a steady person of good deeds and as they observe them, they'll glorify God for that in their life. That's our job. That's actually our job in life. That's why, that's why you don't die right after you're saved. Because like if you're going to heaven, why can't I just die now and go to heaven? Well, you actually have a job. You have a job down here. You're supposed to be doing something. And that's representing God. So anyway, um, that should be our central concern in life. So that's what I get out of this story. I, I really think Paul's a great example here of a mature Christian. So it turns out they land on Malta at St. Paul's Bay. They didn't call it that at the time. Hey, we landed at St. Paul's Bay. No, that wasn't. They called it something else. So next week we're going to move on to the last chapter in the book of Acts, which um, we find ourselves on Malta. And um, we're almost at the end. But it's great stuff. It's great stuff. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Luke. And uh, well, for one thing, his just clear, clear eye telling of history, Lord. He's just so knowledgeable. And that's a great strength for us because in times when people think some of this might not be true, you've provided clear history here. We thank you for Paul. We thank you for his growth as a Christian and as a man that he can um, be the right man at the right time, Lord, because he's matured in his faith. We pray we would draw from his example. And we just thank you for this um, wonderful book, how much we've learned through this. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.